Um, I will now be praying for Charlie, uh, who will be preaching from this passage. Uh, I was asked if I could pray in my first language, in Romanian first, uh, and then I'll finish off in English. Shall we pray? Tatăl nostru, care ești în ceruri, te glorificăm și te preamărim, pentru că ești vrednic de toată lauda și închinarea. Deschide-ne ochii și inimile ca să credem, chiar și când nu vedem. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would open our hearts and minds so that we may be transformed by your words once again this morning. I pray that we would be people who choose to believe even when we do not see. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you very much. Good morning. Um, it's a short passage, but there's a lot in it, and we're probably only going to scratch the surface in the next half hour. Uh, so let me pray again before we begin, and then we'll, uh, we'll see what we can get from it. Father, please give me the right words to say this morning. Please put your spirit at work in us and open our hearts, make us ready for your word, especially with a passage which in some ways is easy to understand, but demands a response from us. Show us the things that we need. Help us as we come to you, the source of life. Amen. If you've been with us over the last couple of months, or if you've been listening in to the sermon recordings, then you'll know that we're coming to the end of an Easter series. We've been working through John 18 through to 20, the, the final chapters of John's gospel, looking at the words of the cross. What John records as being said and done through the days leading up to and then just after Christ's crucifixion and resurrection as his gospel story comes to its climax. We've seen Christ being betrayed by Judas and Peter's denial and the disciples falling away and the bitterly ironic hatred of the Jewish leaders in their sham trial of him. We've seen Pilate's lack of integrity and fear and we've seen the ignominious crucifixion of a criminal. But all through it, John has shown us the striking control of Jesus as he willingly walks the path before him. Think of chapter 18, verse 11, as he commands Peter not to fight to save him. Or his conversations with Pilate, where he fails to appeal for help, but, but almost seems to be sitting in judgment on his judge. John showed us Christ's compassion for his people, even when on the cross. And John has shown us again and again a king like none of this world who, as he goes willingly to the cross, he fits into the pattern of prophecy that was laid out through the Old Testament for God's Messiah to be a, a Passover lamb that perfectly spares his people from the Lord's judgment. We've sung of these things this morning. And then, as we saw last week in the first half of chapter 20, John shows us the risen Lord. He tells us in verse 1, it's the first day of the week. It's the first day of the next chapter of a, of a new creation almost. There's a Genesis echo going on here. It's the first day of the next stage in God's plan. And we see his disciples and Mary stunned in verses 1 to 18. Believing, if not yet understanding. 
John has shown us the kingdom of God breaking through into this world. He's shown us Jesus as the Passover lamb who fulfills the promise and patterns of the Old Testament completely. The the perfect sacrifice for the people of God. He's shown us a king like no other, raised by his father, the God that he claimed unity with, and ready to ascend into heaven and have all authority placed under him. And so today... As we come to the end of the series, we have to ask, what next? John has to wind up his story. How is he going to do it? Is there going to be a cliffhanger? Are we going to be waiting for a sequel? We won't look at chapter 21 today. A few weeks ago, Dave pointed us through some of that, and it's a lovely little epilogue. As Christ meets with his disciples again and reinstates Peter, it's beautiful. But the real punchline of John's gospel. The point comes here in chapter 20. And the the thing for us is that that we've studied this sermon series or in home groups spread over weeks and it's easy for us to step back from it and treat it like an academic exercise. Or, Or if we were some of John's original audience, maybe we would have sat down and read this in a single sitting. A ripping yarn to enjoy and be moved by, but then to put down and get on with life. And the point for John is not to allow those responses. So in chapter 20, he deliberately broadens the story out. Do You see, in, in the first uh, 18 verses, you've got Peter, John and Mary, the intimates of Christ encountering the risen Lord. And then he spreads it out to the disciples. And then he spreads it out to one of them who had missed part of the show. And then in verse 30, he does the theater thing. He, he, he broadens it out to the whole audience. He breaks the fourth wall and he looks out at us and says, this is for you, that you may believe so that you can be changed by what you've read. Let's see what that looks like. Look with me at verses 19 to 23. Um, We had the morning of the first day. This is the evening of the first day. What's God going to create in this echo of Genesis? He's going to create a set of apostles, people sent by him, who are alive in him and who are like him. Look at the disciples in verse 19. They're still in disarray. Some of them have seen the empty tomb. Mary has come back saying that she's seen the risen Lord. The others probably don't know what to make of this. They're terrified. They're locked away for fear of the Jewish leaders, he says, and with good reason. They might well be arrested yet. They might well share their leader's fate. Just in in, in passing, it's, it's probably worth noting that this is not how a glorious new movement starts, is it? This is not how I would choose to portray them if I were making it up. For for this pathetic huddle to go on and shake the world is nothing short of miraculous. And John shows us here what it is that transforms these weak, defeated disciples into the nucleus of a living church. Look at verse 19. Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. 
I think we can assume that his conversation in this meeting with the disciples and in his later meetings with them probably covered quite a lot more than that. But John's being selective in what he writes. He, he says Jesus did a whole load of other stuff that he didn't write down, but this is what he's chosen to record and emphasize for us. Three times he records Jesus saying, peace be with you. Verse 19, verse 21, and 26. He's really making a point, isn't he? This is the heart of what Jesus wanted his disciples to hear. It's not just a greeting. Hey guys, peace be with you. How's it going? It's the message that's going to transform them. Think about what it means. If Jesus is the Old Testament Messiah then he's the Isaiah 9 Prince of Peace. And he turns up here saying, peace be with you, you're in my kingdom. There they are, cowering in mortal fear of the authorities. And he doesn't deny their danger, he doesn't guarantee them easy times ahead. Church history tells us that it's tough for them. His own wounds that he shows them gives them a hint of what's to come. But he says that through the hardship and the challenge, they can be at peace. They can have confidence in their king. They're in his kingdom. They've been brought in. Jesus told Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. And so even though the authorities will persecute and beat and arrest and kill many of these disciples, they can go forward in total security, knowing that they are citizens of a better kingdom. But even more than that, he says, peace be with you. And, and the peace word, it will have been the word shalom. It's a loaded word. It means wholeness and completeness and harmonious Sabbath rest relationship with their God. Everything that in a fallen world sinful humans are barred from. He says, this is what those apostles now have. He's made them like him. They've been brought into his kind of relationship with the Father. And of course, that's been made possible by his sacrifice. The price has been paid for them. Peace be with them. And if they might question or doubt that, the proof, the seal of his confidence is there in verse 20. It's the wounds on his hands and side. And the point is that they can see this Jesus is no imposter. They can see this is the same Jesus who they know, who they know suffered on the cross. And as they see and touch his marks, they get to see for themselves that if he has been raised to life through this, then his claims have been verified. Nothing's going to be beyond his power. His peace is reliable. You can see why they're overjoyed, right? Their friend is back, but beyond that, everything that he's told them has been confirmed. Just a quick side note for us. Isn't it striking that Jesus retains the wounds of his crucifixion? To me, there would be a terrifying sign of weakness and failure and suffering. But to him, they're a crowning glory. They're the testament of God's sovereign plan achieved. That the, 
with the stuff that the world judged weak, God has used for his purposes. That a sacrifice has been made. Christian, you will meet this resurrected Jesus face to face in heaven. The author of this book, John, later sees him in a vision in Revelation 5. And and he says he looks like a lamb who has been slain, but he sat on the throne of glory. You will meet him for yourself. Think about that. And so if, if, like me, you often find yourself looking at yourself and the depths of your failings and think, how can God have me if this is what I'm like? Remember the wounds on his hand and feet. The price has been paid. There's been a sufficient sacrifice. Once for all, I can enter into his peace. Well, friends, if like many in our family at the moment, you are struggling with opposition or or suffering or illness or frailty, remember that our Lord has suffered too. He's gone before us. And he's not ashamed to bear the marks of his suffering. And through them and beyond them and after them, he was raised. And his victory has been won. His people's peace has been guaranteed at a cost far too high to imagine that he would then let us go. His disciples can have his peace. He wishes that on them. He brings them into his kingdom and then they're sent. It's in verse uh, 21. Importantly, they're sent in the same way, in the same sense that Jesus is. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. So their mission is going to be Christ's mission and the authority sending them is the Father's authority. He's brought them into his kingdom. He's now bringing them into his own work as well. So what was Jesus sent for? John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. That, says John, is the condition for safety, for life with God, to respond to Jesus. And he sends these disciples, these apostles, in the same way and for the same purpose that the Father sent him. They're to carry his gospel. They're to carry the news about him. They're to let others know about the life that they've received because whoever believes them will have life. And presumably they can expect to be wounded like them. Like him. He says, as the Father sent me with holes in my side and hands, so I'm sending you. It's not going to be easy. They're going to need help. And so verse 22. He brings them into his kingdom. He brings them into his work. And then verse 22, he breathes on them and gives them the Holy Spirit. And I think we're meant to pick up again that this is a bit like Genesis 2. At the start of that first creation, when God breathed life and spirit into Adam, here, Jesus is bringing them into his life. 
He's breathing his own spirit into them to work in them, to empower and teach and equip and counsel them. And of course, this shouldn't be a surprise. All of this is in line with what he had told them before, but they'd not been able to understand it yet. So in chapter 16, he'd told them they would have a time of grief and then they'd see him again and rejoice. That's happening now. In chapter 14, he'd promised that his spirit would come to teach them and that he'd give them his peace. That, that's happening now. It's only now that they begin to actually see and believe and put it all together and he's making them alive to him by his spirit. John says this is what real life is. Knowing Jesus, sharing his peace and his work, and his relationship with Father. What does Jesus do on this first day after his resurrection? He creates a set of apostles who are alive like him, who are going to be like him, in their work, in their peace, in their spirit, and then they're going to have his mission. Verse 23 is uncomfortable, isn't it? What a burden. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they're not. People differ slightly on what to make of that. But perhaps it's a role and gifting specific to the apostles. Maybe they had an ability and an authority to see where people's hearts were hard or soft to the gospel. You can think of times in the book of Acts where the apostles showed piercing insight into others. And pass judgment. So chapter 5. Ananias and Sapphira drop dead on the spot when Peter confronts them. But I think actually probably more uncomfortably. It extends more generally to all believers. There's a serious responsibility in verse 23. That comes with responding to Jesus. He's given them his peace. His spirit at work in them. His mission. And then whether or not they act accordingly may decide whether others around them receive the gospel. Perhaps that, as a difficult thought, will be something to explore in home groups this week. What complexion does it put on my timid evangelism? What about the next chunk? Verses uh, 19 to 23 show Jesus bringing the disciples into his peace and life and mission. He makes them his apostles, his sent ones. And the rest of the passage then broadens it further. It makes the point that it's not just them. We don't just get to sit back and leave it to the apostles or the church leaders. So so John shows us Thomas first, and then he turns and talks to us. So Thomas, um, we don't know much about him in verse 24 and 29. Um, It always feels quite unfair to me that he gets dubbed doubting Thomas just for this one incident. It's like that one mistake that hangs around forever. But, but John's actually nicer than that. He's kinder. He, he doesn't criticize Thomas here. In fact, elsewhere, chapter 11, he shows us Thomas as bravely loyal. In chapter 11, when the other disciples can't persuade Jesus that Judea's too dangerous a place to go, it's Thomas who steps up and says, well, let's go with him too so we can die with him. Or in chapter 14, we we see Thomas really struggling to understand what Jesus means and how to follow him. John's, I think, deliberately not criticizing him heavily. 
For whatever reason, he's not with the disciples when Jesus first comes to them. We don't know why. It might be for good reasons. It might not. And when they tell him what's happened, we can hardly fault him for doubting, can we? The other disciples hadn't understood either that Jesus would be raised. And they didn't know what to make of the empty tomb. They'd still lock themselves away in fear, specifically it says. Whereas next time, the doors are just locked. Instead of having that spirit-filled confidence. John doesn't dub him Doubting Thomas here. He doesn't even outrightly criticize him. but, But I think he is gently showing us someone who's caught in a sin. Thomas' initial disbelief and shock as the others tell him what's happened, that's totally legitimate. But then notice verse 26. A week later, Thomas's obstinate, I will not believe, has been hanging around his neck for a week. That must have been a pretty strained and awkward seven days, right? It's actually kind of remarkable that Thomas is still with them. Think about it. The other disciples, they've been rejoicing at what they've seen. And Thomas is stuck in perplexed mourning. The other disciples, they've been exploring the implications of the wonderful gospel truths that they're beginning to understand. And they're putting together all the things that Jesus said with what's happened and and seeing how it fits together. And and Thomas asserts that they're either mad or lying to him. How how does that work? He, He should have been persuaded, shouldn't he? He should have trusted them enough to give their words credence. He he should have put what they were saying together with what Jesus had told him. And just think, if he had, then he would have been the first of those who had not seen but then believed. Instead, he rejects the testimony of his friends and his family. That must have been pretty tough for them as well. Think of the potential here for damage to the early church. With Judas' betrayal and suicide, the 12, they'd already become 11 painfully. They could have become 10 at this. Think of the damage that division and argument can do to any of our churches. It's got no place in this new creation of Christ, has it? But what John shows us here is Jesus coming to Thomas with amazing, generous grace and mercy. This new life and purpose that Christ has unveiled for his disciples is also shared with someone who at first doubted and rejected the risen Lord. Remember that John used those three repetitions of peace be with you to emphasize the message? The third happens with Thomas there. He's included. The others were all shown the wounds. So is Thomas. He's given what he needs to believe. His doubt must have been a wedge between him and the others, a wound in the community. But but faced with Jesus, this wound is healed. 
And he's overwhelmed by the command. He stops doubting and believes. My Lord and my God, he says. And it's not just intellectual assent, is it? It's not just, okay, the others were right. It's a whole heart response. My Lord, my ruler, my sovereign, my master. And my God, the object of my worship and the root of my confidence. Another side note. Isn't it striking then that we see this full, merciful restoration of Thomas? That there is no indication anywhere in the rest of the New Testament that he's a second-class apostle. What would we do? (laughs) Wouldn't we be tempted to lock him out a little? He'd be the one who doubted and then believed, the Johnny-come-lately of the apostles? But I wonder if the reason that John doesn't write criticizing him explicitly is that John knows that the stain of doubt has been totally wiped away. Because it's Christ's remarkable, generous grace to see his followers like us made completely into his likeness, no matter what our history. The only wounds that remain are his. So when Thomas is brought into the Lord's peace and life, there's nothing to be said for sin anymore. Friends, do you need to be assured of that? Are there failings that you are bitterly aware of which stand between you and Christ's peace? Are there patterns of sinful behavior that you find hard to let go of? Or things that you feel disqualify you from his people? Or make you less than other churchgoers? That is not how Christ sees it. Thomas receives the same peace as the rest. And I think verse 29 ties him in with the same mission and responsibility the others have been given. The disciples together are to take the message to those who haven't seen Christ for themselves. And where Thomas didn't take it on faith, others will need to. So how's that going to work? Verse 30 and 31, they're the kick in the shin at the end of John's gospel to wake us up. Pay attention and respond. This might be the point where you pinch yourself and wake yourself from my droning voice. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, John writes. He's not just writing a ripping yarn or an inspirational biography. These are written, he says, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John's gospel has been littered with evidence with names and places and people who were still alive or remembered when he wrote, and things that the audience could and were meant to check out, so that from his account and from the gospel accounts of other disciples, they could encounter everything they needed to know about the risen Lord Jesus. So they could know and believe that he was Messiah, So that like the apostles, they could have life in his name and be brought into his peace and his work and his spirit in the same way. So that they could be like Thomas and turn and acknowledge my Lord and my God. 
And so really for us, that is the very simple application question, isn't it? Do you believe? Do you have life in his name? It may well be that you're here and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. That's fine. Welcome. We love having you here. Maybe you don't know where you stand on these things, but perhaps you've come along out of curiosity or you're visiting a friend or or you just come along because it's what your family does and you go with them. Let me say, obviously, you're very, very welcome, but please realize that we're serious about this claim. We don't think that church is a place for nice people. It's it's not just something that we do on a Sunday morning. And although it's a supportive community who look out for each other, we think it's much, much more than that. It's certainly not a place for the good people. We come here because we know that we're flawed. And our lives are lacking and broken. And our claim is that in Jesus, and only in Jesus... We find our healing and our real life. You don't have to agree with me. But let me encourage you. Take John's claim seriously and give it a look. Look into the historical authenticity of the resurrection. Or read through this book of John for yourself. It takes an hour or two. And then talk it over with someone you came with. Because he says this is much more than a nice fable. Jesus says that he came so that his people could have life to the full. And anyone, even us, who acknowledge that and acknowledge him, receive his life. Most of us here would call ourselves Christians. And friends, the application is the same. I'm no grammar buff, but I'm told that the verb John uses is continuous, an ongoing one. These things are written so that you may go on believing. This isn't an idea for the new convert. This isn't something you deal with and then move on to harder stuff. This is the daily bread, staple diet of the mature Christian. And it's not just the intellectual assent. Do you believe? Yes. No, no. John wrote this knowing that we need to keep coming back to these truths. So the challenge for us is to daily and consistently be acknowledging my Lord and my God. To daily and consistently recognize that we are included in his peace, in his kingdom, in his work. And to put our security and confidence and motivation there. It's to daily recognize that that weighty privilege and responsibility that his peace puts on us. Verse 22, verse 29. And it's to consistently recognize and receive and long for his spirit to work in us, humbly depending on his strength, not mine. Because that, says John, is what having life in his name is all about. So friends, how's your Bible reading and prayer life? Because if I'm not constantly coming back to his word and kneeling before him in prayer, how am I going to keep being like Thomas and acknowledging him as the center? 
Let's be honest, most of us find it pretty difficult to pray consistently and satisfyingly, but, but even my pitiful, weak efforts, he will use and guide because he puts his spirit at work in his people. He helps us to live in his peace. How many of us instead give him lip service but look for our life in other places? I know I do. Where do you tell yourself your satisfaction will be? Or your worth? Or your security? Is it family? Career? A bank balance? Leisure? John reminds us that that our life comes only in the name of Jesus, our Lord and God, who brings us peace and sends us out to share in his work. And so that's who I need to fix my eyes on day by day. That's who I need to run to. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Let's pray to him. Jesus came stood among them and said, peace be with you. Lord Jesus, you've promised that wherever two or three gather in your name, you would be with them. Lord, please be at work in us this morning then. Help us to glimpse and then to cling to what it means to have your peace. Help us to share in your shalom relationship with the Father. Show us that we are healed by your wounds. Give us joy and courage to share your work. And when we experience your help, help us then to rejoice and to revel in you. Grant that we would encounter you, our risen Lord, in your word as we read it day by day. And shown to us as well in the body of the church you've put around us. Lord, help us in our unbelief to turn to you and put doubt aside and acknowledge that you are Lord and God. And grant us life as we do that. Amen.